My name is Noah Joyner, and I do a couple of things here. Um, I oversee our adult education and other kind of equipping, helping people get ready for ministry here and in other places. So it's just a joy to be here and to work here, and I'm, I'm really thankful for the 17 years of, of ministry that I've been able to be a part of here, and really thankful for a church that values the Word and has always valued the Word. So you know, everything that we just did, all the singing and praying and preparing, all of that prepares us for the hearing and receiving of God's word. And so I hope that you come to this time with great anticipation about what God is going to say and do among us, what he's going to say to you and say to me through his word. And so that's my hope this morning, is that, that you will come with that anticipation. Um, as many of you know, I work in the Dominican Republic off and on. I travel back and forth. And while I'm there, I teach at a small Bible college there. I teach about three hours a day. And so when I'm not teaching, I'm always looking for something fun to do. And so I've got a good friend named Jody. He's one of my, one of my very best friends. He is from Mississippi. We don't hold that against him. Uh, he, he knows the Dominican really well. He knows Dominican culture, language, and knows the, the landscape really well. And so when he asked me one day if I wanted to see a waterfall, I said, yeah, would love to. Great, let's do it. So he and I and a couple of other people, we load up in his car, we drive up into the mountains about 20 minutes, uh, get to where we're going, and then we hike out through the jungle about an hour. And so we're hiking, and it's hot, and you know we're hiking through the river and all that, and we get to this waterfall, and it is beautiful. I mean, like 50 feet high, crystal clear water, pristine, just everything you would think a waterfall should be. This is, this is it. Deep pool at the bottom where you can jump off a rock into it, swim. Water's super cold, just perfect. And so everybody's oohing and aahing about this thing. And, and he says, well, well that's, not the, that's not the waterfall I'm talking about. And we're like, what? Like, it can't be better than this. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's better than this. And so all of us are like, okay, well, let's go. So we put our packs back on and we start kind of hiking up this hill. Uh, some of you may not know this about me, but I'm afraid of heights. And, and anything more than about 50 feet makes me feel a little strange. I get a little disoriented. And so this, this waterfall that we're looking up at is about 50 feet, right? And so then we start hiking up this trail that's going this way. And all of a sudden, we're looking down on the waterfall. And I'm like, ah, I don't like this. I don't, I don't really enjoy this. But, but I keep hiking anyway. So the, the path that we're on gets more narrow and more narrow. And it comes to an end. And then Jody looks up. He says, we're going up there. It's about 15 feet high. And, and so you're thinking, well, 15 feet, that's not really that high. But the, the 15 feet plus the little ledge and then the 50 feet under it really is, is what was most concerning to me. And so at this point, I'm, you know, I'm afraid of heights and I'm a little worn out from the hike. And, and you know, my, my cat-like climbing abilities, you know, put all that together. And I'm thinking, absolutely not. I'm not climbing this thing. You know, I've already seen this really great waterfall. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna chill. And so as I'm deliberating, this teenage girl that we're with, she just climbs right up the thing, and I'm like, gah. And then her 12 year old brother climbs up it, and I'm, I'm, I'm at this point, I'm like, okay, not gonna be outdone by teenagers. So, you know, engage pride, and I start climbing. And so my my buddy Jody, he's like, okay, put your hand here, put your foot there. You know, he's climbed it a bunch of times, so he's kind of walking me through. And I get about halfway up. The pride has worn off and all that's left is concern. <laughs> and so I'm up there about halfway up and I'm thinking, what am I doing? Like, like what is it going to cost to get me airlifted out of here? And, and 
do they airlift here? <laughs> Stuff like that. And so I, I, I say the first thing that comes to my mind, Jody, I hate you. I'm coming down. I'm not going. And he says, he says, no, no, Noah, the waterfall we're going to, it's worth it. All right. It's, it's harder to come down than it is to go back up. Just, just keep going. I'm, I'm with you. Everything's cool. Let's keep going. So I, I trust my friend Jody and, and I keep climbing. I get up to the top of it and I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Like, all right, we did this. And I'm thinking, you know, right around the corner is going to be this other magnificent waterfall. Well, we go up a little further and he's like, well, we also have to climb through this other waterfall. And I'm like, I hate you, Jody. I hate you. And so I, I do what Jody says. I climb up. He helps me. We get through. And when we get through this kind of climbing through the river, through the waterfall, we get to this waterfall and it is immaculate. It's like 70 foot high. It's got this weird cap thing on it. So everything, you know, all the water's cascading off of it. The water's just turquoise, no trash. And if you've ever been to the Dominican Republic, that is a feat in and of itself. Like no trash anywhere. I mean, perfect, perfect. And, as we're, and everybody's just like, wow, yeah, this one's way better than the other one. And so as we're looking up at this thing, he, he comes up to me and he says, is it worth it? You know, was it worth the climb? And I'm, I'm like, absolutely without a doubt, worth the climb. And I've done it multiple times since then, having seen that it, that it is worth it. It was worth the climb. You know, Jody, he pushed me to a place that I would not have gone to by myself. Left to myself, I would have stayed at the first waterfall and been like, oh, this is the best waterfall ever. I wouldn't even have known there's greater waterfalls to be seen. And so unless he pushed me, I would not have gone there. And, and that really is my job this morning is to, to push you to push us to places that we would not go apart from being pushed. And, and that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is going to do. He's going to push on us, drag us, poke us this morning. And, and so this morning, we have a climb to make together. It's going to be rough in spots, but I'm going to be your Jody. I'm going to kind of take you through, put your foot here, put your foot there, let's climb up. And, and, and you, may want, you may want to give up at points. Uh, you don't. Keep climbing. Because what's offered at the end of this journey that we're going through is treasures for eternity. The bad news is this. Uh, I'm only going to take you halfway. Uh, next week, Jake is going to kind of take you the, through the whole distance, through the end of the chapter that we're going to be in. But I'm going to leave you today kind of hanging on the cliff, right? We're going to get about halfway up, and I'm just going to leave you there. And, and just to let you know, that's where we're going. So if you're a visitor, this is a two-part sermon. Uh, we had talked about doing, you know, this part, and then Jake would come up right after and, and keep rolling. But we thought two hours worth of preaching would probably be more than y'all can handle. Um, so we're going to break it in half. So if you're a visitor here today, uh, don't despair. It's not like this every week. There's usually a lot more hope than this. Um, so come back next week and, and get the second part. Uh, we really encouraging. Finish the journey out with us. So I'm going to leave you hanging. Think um, Sylvester Stallone cliffhanger. You guys remember that movie? It's like hanging on. Worst Sylvester Stallone movie ever, and that's saying something. So um, I'm going to leave you like this. You're going to be like hanging. So it's my job to confront us this morning, to make us uncomfortable, and to push us to places we may not go on our own. So with that job at hand, will you pray with me? Pray for me. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that your word would come to bear on us. It would change us and shape us and push us. It would um, 
lead us, guide us, drag us to places that we would not go on our own. Protect us from pride. Protect us from spiritual pride that says this message is not for me. Protect us from despair that says I'm too far gone. God, may your son Jesus and the work that he has done on our behalf for all who would trust him, uh, would it avail to us? Would it be the, the sweetest and greatest of news to us this morning? We love you, Lord. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. So look with me at uh, Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 26 to 31. And it reads like this. It says, For if we go on sitting deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So even, even just taking a glance at verse 26 uh, you can imagine that there's some competing views out there about what's going on in this whole passage. It's, it's fairly difficult. Um, I had multiple people come up to me after the service and say, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, this is a really tough passage. And so uh, we're going to have to kind of hang on for the ride and, and step, step by step and, and see what's going on here. And so, uh, so there's some competing views about what's going on in verse 26, particularly in the whole passage. Some read it to say that this is talking about genuine, converted, spirit-filled believers who fall away from the faith by rejecting Christ. They were believing and trusting in Christ for salvation, but then they stopped. Some read it to be hypothetical as to say that if a genuine believer was to stop believing and trusting in Christ, then Christ's sacrifice would no longer avail to him or her. But because it is hypothetical, this will never happen. Still others read this passage to be speaking of people who seem to be believers, who heard the truth, agreed to its truthfulness, even began to grow in truth, but because of various reasons, they lose confidence in the message, proving that they were never genuine believers in the first place, that their confidence was never truly in Christ. And yet another view that some take is, it says that these types of warning in scripture are a type of tool God uses to make sure that all believers continue in faith and don't turn back. And all of these, these views have different levels of merit or validity. Um, so, so what is a preacher to do, right? So, so standing up here, what do, what do I do? I almost call in sick today. But, but in, in all seriousness, I believe the Bible's intention is to be clear. It's not hiding things. It's revealing things. It's not uh, covering things up. It's uncovering things. So we're going to have to look around a bit to see what is it saying. And so I'm going to hang on to a mixture of the last two options that I just presented to you and then show you why I think this is the most plausible uh, conclusion in light of the book as a whole and in, the, and in the Bible in general. And so to be clear... I believe that this passage is talking about those who hear the gospel and hold, to, hold it to be true at some level. They find a place in the church and even conform to Christian living in some fashion. But they ultimately reject Christ. 
at a deep level, they are continuing in unbelief, and that is shown because they do not endure to the end. And the intention of the author in presenting this is to push the one who has faith in Christ to continue on, to keep on climbing. And so I I see a bit of a mixture there. So let's look at verse 26 and see if we can pick it apart a bit. Verse 26 says this, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And what I want to do is to break this verse into a few parts so we can look at what's being said. And we're going to ask a handful of questions. What is meant by sinning deliberately? What is meant by receiving a knowledge of the truth? And what is meant by sacrifice for sins? So we'll look at each of those things individually. So for this part, for if we go on sinning deliberately... First, we want to note the idea of we. He's, he's including himself. He's talking to a group of people that uh, he's saying all of us. And the writer, he's talking to a group who, as far as he knows, they're all believers. He's speaking to them as if they are all believers. He is speaking to them in terms of condition. And he says, if you keep on doing X, Y is going to happen. If you keep on sinning deliberately, he doesn't know what they'll do. He's not, con- he's not convinced of, will they do this or will they do this? And so he's speaking to them in these very conditional terms. If you continue to do X, Y is going to happen. So what does it mean to go on sinning deliberately? And so as we reflect on what's just come before in the book of Hebrews, verses 19 to 25, that Ed Martin preached last week, uh, if we mix that together, and apply that to what's being said in verse 26, this would, this would be a good conclusion. So to go on sinning deliberately would be something like this. An unwillingness to draw near to God via Christ, an unwillingness to hold fast to their confession of faith, an unwillingness to trust that God's promises are true and trustable, an unwillingness to stir others up to love, an unwillingness to meet up with the body, an unwillingness to encourage others in the faith, And this is a deliberate rejection of the work of Christ, his message and the corresponding life that goes with believing. So don't read this to say, if you keep on struggling with the same sin, you know, losing it with your kids, having an extra helping at dinner, or buying that stuff you don't need, or wanting the approval of others, that's not what it's talking about. There's plenty of Bible passages that talk about those, but that's not exactly what this passage is talking about. What is in view here is, the, is a rejection of Christ and what he offers in response to those sins. A rejection of his solution for those sins and its penalty. So for these original hearers, it would be going back to the temple. Not trusting Christ by Worshipping in the way that they used to. Trusting in the things that they used to. Then we have this statement. After receiving a knowledge of the truth. And at, at first glance, if you look at this after receiving a knowledge of the truth. At first glance, it would be easy to read this and think that it's saying something like. After you have trusted in Christ for salvation. And many people read it this way. But if we look at this phrase in other passages of scripture. I think we get some clues as to what's being said. Uh, We see it in four different places in uh, the New Testament other than here, and they're all used by the Apostle Paul when speaking in the pastoral epistles. And so in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake 
of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And then in 2 Timothy in chapter 2, he's talking about elders, what an elder should do. And he says that an elder should be able to correct his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Then 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, all, all about God who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so what we see is this phrase, knowledge of the truth, being coupled together with the word faith, repentance, and salvation. It's used very positively here. But we also see it being used negatively. Look with me in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-9. through 9. This is uh, the Apostle Paul, um, and he's talking about the, the, what will come at the end, kind of some things that will happen. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of good, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. He says, avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burden them with sins, and lead astray, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. (laughs) In the first three instances, we see something very positive. We see this knowledge of the truth meeting together with something only God can do, faith, repentance, salvation. We see then this is very negative here, that these men, though, though they're always learning, they can never come to a knowledge of the truth. And so it seems like that we have a bit of a scale being presented here. So I want to propose that scale to you. And so on one end is the one who opposes truth and therefore never comes to a knowledge of the truth. On the other end is the one in whom a knowledge of the truth it meets with faith and repentance and salvation. And in the middle is this strange category of person who receives the truth and even affirms the truth and maybe even is happy to receive the truth, but that truth does not take hold and meet with repentance and faith and salvation. I think this is exactly what we see in Luke chapter 8 in the parable of the soil. So turn with me there real quick, and we'll look in Luke chapter 8, verses 4 to 15. So what I'm trying to do for you is to create these categories so that you can use them to then look at Hebrews chapter 10. Okay? And this is Jesus teaching. Jesus is teaching a parable. He's making up this story to make a point. And when a great crowd was gathered... And people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. And some fell into good soil and grew up and yielded a hundredfold. And he said these things and he called out, he who has ears, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, 
so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. Now he's going to explain the parable. All right. So if you were sleeping before, pay attention here. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who hear the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience or endurance. Same word there. In the parable, he, Jesus, he presents four responses that people will have to the word of God or to the truth. One, some hear the word, but it is taken away from their hearts so that they may not believe or be saved. Two, some hear the word with joy. They believe for a while, but in times of testing, they fall away. Three, some hear the word and start to bear fruit, but the cares and riches and pleasures of life choke out the fruit and it does not mature. And fourth, there are some who hear the word, they hold it fast with an honest and good heart, and they bear fruit with patient endurance. So Jesus presents us a scale of response to the truth. The first seems to be a flat-out rejection, but the middle two seem to be people who latch onto the truth at some level. They joyfully receive the truth and start to bear some fruit, but times of testing and cares and riches and pleasures kill the fruit and the growth, and they don't endure. But the last one hears the word, holds fast to that truth. It meets with an honest and good heart, and they bear fruit with patient endurance. And so the hanging question in the parable of the soils is, where do you get a good heart? Where does that come from? So as we reflect on Hebrews 10, through the lens of Luke chapter 8, we see a, a biblical category for people who have some knowledge of the truth, yet do not endure in faith. And if you look closely, you'll notice some striking similarities between the parable of the soils in Luke and Hebrews 10. Look, pay attention to these. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, open to chapter 10, you'll see these of the book of Hebrews. In the second soil, it says that they received the word with joy. That is the same verb used, receive, used in Hebrews 10, 26, to receive a knowledge of the truth. The seed that is sown on the road is trampled underfoot. The same phrase is used for those who trample underfoot the Son of God in verse 29 of our passage this morning. In the third soil, we see the reason the fruit doesn't mature is that the cares and riches and pleasures of life kill the fruit. And we'll see next week in the next section of Hebrews that the writer, he commends his audience because they were willing to have their possessions taken away from them, showing that they have a better possession, Jesus. They're not concerned with riches, but they're concerned with Christ. In the last soil, we see that, that they hear the word and they hold fast to it. Remember last week, what was the command? What was one of the commands from last week? Did it sound like something like, hold fast? Yes? Yeah. It's, he, last week we heard, let us hold fast the confession of our hope because God is faithful to his promises. 
In the last soil, we also see that they endure. This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 36 in our passage for next week, is that they have need of endurance. Same word that's used in Luke, patience and endurance, same word, okay? Continues. In the last soil, it says that this one has a good and honest heart. And that's just what the writer of Hebrews encourages in verse 23, to draw near to God with a true and clean heart. As for that that hanging question from the parable of the soils, where does one get a good, honest, true, clean heart? Where does somebody get one of those? Because I don't have one of those. Where does somebody get one of those? I can't make that in myself, right? That's not who I am naturally. So where does somebody get one one of those? And so the book of Hebrews, it answers that question profoundly. And we see it in a bit, a bit of that in chapter 10. In verse 16, it says that God is going to put his laws on his people's heart and write them in their minds. And so God makes the heart change needed to have a good, true, honest, clean heart. And so all this stuff that's happening over in Luke 8, we see it showing up in Hebrews chapter 10. That's important. So the connection between Hebrews 10 and the parable of the soils, it's, it's pretty stunning. And it may be that Luke is, is helping us to read what's going on in Hebrews. And so some people have received a knowledge of the truth. They have heard the word. They're growing, showing some fruit, but the cares of life and testing has come. Persecution. And it seems that they are losing hope. This is exactly what's happening in the book of Hebrews. All these things that, that uh, Luke chapter 8 talks about, this is what's going on with these people. So the writer of Hebrews, he warns them because he knows if they do not endure and hold fast with a good heart, they will not be saved. Because endurance, holding fast to the word with a good heart, is the mark of Christ in us. So as we move forward, what what does it mean that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins in verse 26? We should read this to be speaking primarily about about Christ's atoning sacrifice and the work that he did to save all who trust in him and who trust only in his work on the cross. But secondarily, it may be including the fact that the temple sacrifices are null and void. That's been the argument of the whole book of Hebrews, that the temple sacrifices— that the Jews had been making from old, that they're null and void and they're unable to make perfect. They're unable to save sinners. So there is, if you're not trusting the sacrifice of Christ, there is no sacrifice that can deal with the problem. So because of all we have said so far, it's plain to say that the writer is meaning to say something like this. This is, this is what the author is after. If you keep on walking in the sin of not trusting Christ, even after you have received a knowledge of the truth, the work that Christ did on the cross will be of no benefit to you, seeing that you are not trusting him. It's probably a good summary statement for verse 26. If we kind of take all that we're seeing going on in the book of Hebrews and mashing that together. So imagine with me that you meet someone and he tells you about a highway that leads to a city where if you enter, you will live forever. The person tells you all about the city and and you're all about it, you're you're going. But before you leave, he warns you that there are all sorts of other exits along the way 
And that if you get off of the main highway, all those exits, they lead to a cliff where you will suddenly drive off and die. So you go home, you fill the car with gas, and you get on the road, and you're driving, and you're driving, and you're driving, and you're driving. And you see exit signs, and they say stuff like this. This way, for the pleasure of a lifetime, or greater riches than you can imagine over here, or this way to go back home, or you've been driving so long, don't you want to pull over and rest? And the signs are like one on top of each other. It's like south of the border, right? And they're just one after the other. You can't get away from them. It's like every five feet. And finally, you give in. You take the rest exit because everybody needs a break, right? And just as you pull off, your buddy that told you about the road, he pulls up behind you. He's, he's flashing his lights. He's beeping the horn. He's yelling. And so you stop. And he pulls up beside you and he says, no, don't go that way. If you go that way, you will die. Trust the road. The road will take you to the city where you will live forever. If you keep going that way, it will lead to a fiery death. Turn around, he says. So, so how can the road save you if you don't trust it enough to keep on it? And likewise, why would we, why would you think that Christ's saving work will save you if you don't trust it all the way till the end? If you get off at some point, doesn't that show that you don't trust it? Just like the man on the highway. So the, the writer of the book of Hebrews, he's, he's pulled along the side of the church. And he's screaming, hey, hey, you, yeah, you, y'all. Us, we. If you keep on not trusting Christ, if you keep on living for yourself, if you keep on losing confidence, if you keep on down the road you're on, Christ's work will be of no benefit to you. It's what he's saying. And that's the point of verse 27. If you keep on not trusting Christ, you should expect the judgment of God. Verse 27 says that a fearful expectation of judgment remains and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The writer wants to be clear with us and his audience. This is, this is not a game. If we throw away the one thing that God has provided, his son Jesus, if we throw Christ away, if we throw away his penalty-paying sacrifice for the judgment that we deserve, we should expect judgment. We should expect an incinerating fire because we have positioned ourselves as an enemy of God. Brothers and sisters, this is not a sermon, but a call to save your very lives and the lives of everyone that you love. If you are swerving from Christ, swerve back to him. If you are drifting, by God's grace, grab that anchor and pull yourself into the anchor. Grab that rope and pull yourself in. If you have set Christ aside, lay hold of him again. If you're growing weak, stand up under the grace that Christ is offering to you now through this message, this passage of Scripture. 
The strength that he requires, he provides as we trust him and nothing else. The writer, he continues his warning. And he does it through comparison in verses 28 and 29. He says this, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? The writer of Hebrews, he he reminds his Hebrew audience that what was prescribed under the law God gave to Moses And if anyone would set aside that law or or, or or disregard that law, meaning to reject that law and all of its blessings and benefits, they would be put to death with no mercy because they were rejecting the God who mercifully described, he prescribed for them how they might be like him, how they might be holy. You see, a rejection of God's law and regulations for living are a rejection of God himself. And not the way you might reject a Facebook friend request. Not that innocent. But think of if one were to reject the king who created him and gave him life and sustained him. That type of rejection. It's a a personal assault on a very personal God. And that's exactly the way that the author lays it out in verse 29. He says, if the judgment was bad for those under the old covenant, how much more for those who hear and feel and reject the new covenant? He says, how much worse will be deserved? And he's, he's talking about a future day. And that, that future day we should understand as the day of judgment, as was mentioned back in verse 25. He uses very personal terms to explain the depth of rejection of disbelief by those who have heard and experienced at some level the truth of the word. First, he says that they have trampled underfoot. This is very personal language. They have trampled underfoot the Son of God. And this is exactly the same wording that Jesus used in his parable for the seed that was sown on the road. And this choice of words reflects the abusive nature of rejecting or setting Jesus and his message aside, especially by those who have experienced some nearness to Christ through his word. John Chapman, what would you do if someone trampled your son? How would you respond? Not good. Greg Bowers, how about you? Not good. It would be bad. And I think about my daughters. What if someone trampled my, my daughters? I hate to think of what would happen. Now let me ask you, what if we trample the Son of God to treat him as nothing, to reject him, to abuse him, to treat his message and work of salvation as nothing, to trample it, under my feet. How might God respond? How much more will they deserve? Will we deserve if we trample the Son of God? 
Then it says they have profaned the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified. And here we see that not only is it relational, but it's also functional rejection. Meaning to say that the thing that set them apart or made them holy, they considered it unclean or unholy. So we could read the phrase this way, that they consider unholy the blood of the covenant that made them holy. And so there's kind of a play on words happening here. Almost like, so if the thing that makes clean, or the, sorry, so if the thing that makes clean becomes unclean, how can anything be made clean or holy? So it's kind of like this. So if Clorox becomes unclean, what can then get clean? So if the blood of Christ that makes clean is unclean in their estimation, how then can they be made clean? How can they be set apart or be holy? Again, a deeper rejection, a functional rejection of the thing that makes God's people holy, the blood of Christ. If I'm you, I'm asking, how is it that these people who have rejected Christ and profaned his blood, how can they be considered sanctified or, or made holy or set apart? Uh, I had the same question, and I, I found 1 Corinthians 7:14 to be helpful. Uh, it reads like this. It says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Nothing like an unclear passage to clear up another unclear passage. I'm breaking rules here. But though, the, though this 1 Corinthians passage is not the most clear New Testament passage, it seems that there is an aspect of marriage to a believing spouse that makes holy or sets apart or sanctifies the unbelieving spouse. Not that they should be, not that they should be considered Christian, but there is a peripheral benefit or a, a holy shrapnel, if you will, and this may be what's intended in Hebrews 10. An unbeliever who experienced some benefit of receiving the word and being in a Christian community, so much so that they grew in holiness and some level of obedience to God. Much like the second and third soil in the parable of the soils. Growth, but no completion of fruit. No, no full fruit to maturity. And and if you grew up in a Christian home, this, this should make sense to you because growing up in a Christian home, there were certain boundaries and encouragements that I didn't get. And so you were probably way more wise and made better decisions than I did as a young man because your parents, though you weren't a believer, at some level, the, the effect of living in community with them was good for you. Much like, uh, much like uh, Israel. They're mostly unbelievers, but in many ways they were more holy or set apart or sanctified than their neighboring nations. Sometimes they were. Uh, and that was God's grace to them, God's setting them apart, even though in, most of them were unbelievers. So at the very least, we should have a category in our mind for those who are unbelieving yet sanctified in some sense of the word. Lastly, they have outraged the spirit of grace. Not that this has ever happened in my home, but imagine a child who has shown grace over and over and over and yet spurns that grace, flirting with that grace, but never laying hold of it. And in the face of all types of disobedience, grace is shown, but no response of thankfulness and gratitude. This would be outrageous, right? It would be, be unbelievable or unacceptable. It would, it would be anger-inducing. And this, this seems to be the response of the Holy Spirit to the rejection of the Son. Outrage. 
And these verses, they, they read like a courtroom indictment. They did this, they did this, and they did this. And then the sentencing is handed down. The verdict is handed down in verses 30 and 31. It says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The writer makes clear that to spurn Christ, his blood, the spirit of grace, is to make oneself an enemy of God. And on the last day, all will face a judgment. All will stand face to face with a judge who shows no partiality. No injustice will be, will be tolerated and no hidden thing will remain hidden. These verses should scare the hell out of you. And I mean that with great intention and precision. That is the intention of these verses, is to scare you out of hell. To push you to God in a way that nothing else can. The fear of God himself. The author is very intentional here, and I want to be intentional with you also. You should wet yourself at the thought of this moment of meeting God face to face. You should feel sick at the notion that you would stand before this God. Your heart should melt inside of you. You should lose control of your faculties. You should weep and mourn because this God is no joke. He is no myth and he is not to be trifled with like we could fool him. He is a tsunami of fire, a tornado of terror, an earthquake of horror, a pit of destruction. You do not want to face him alone. Brothers and sisters, we are on a cliff and it is not 15 feet high. It is higher than the heights and God himself awaits at the bottom to consume the one who gives up the climb. The one who doesn't trust his son. The son who says, put your hand here and put your foot there. Keep on climbing. It's worth it. I'm with you. A tornado against sin is coming. What is your safe place? No, no, who, who is your safe place? A tsunami is swelling, it's mounting. Who is your high ground? An earthquake is trembling. In whom will you hide? Brothers and sisters, we all have areas of unbelief, every single person in here. Will you let those grow up or will you respond in faith? We all have sin, but will you submit those sins to Christ and live? Brothers and sisters, I know you are tired. I know your faces and I know your stories, many of you. I know what you have suffered and you probably will suffer worse. Will you give up? Will you let sin and its effects grow up on you like a weed, choking out all the good that God wants to do in your life? 
Will you let go? Saying, you know, I'm tired. This is too much for me. I've had enough. This is exactly what is happening in the book of Hebrews. And the writer is saying, no, don't give up and don't give in. Because if you do, you will perish. You will be consumed by one who is a consuming fire that you cannot escape. But if you trust the son, Jesus, not play with him, not coddle him, not wear his t-shirts, but you trust him with every single ounce of who you are for every single day of your life, you will be saved. Some of us have turned off the highway and it is time to put that thing in reverse and back your way up the exit ramp, back onto the highway. Some of you have swerved from Christ. Some of you have let go of that rope that ties you so deep into God, the anchor Jesus. You've let go of that rope. Some of you have set Christ aside. And I want to encourage you. Pick him up. Grab that rope. Keep climbing by God's grace because he supplies all the grace that you need for this climb. And he is with you in the middle of it. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Don't give up. Don't let go. Because if you do, you will be consumed. You will face a judgment for your sins on your own if you let go of Christ. And you don't want to do that. You should fear that moment with every fiber of your being. And so let me ask you, how, how do we respond to a message like this, to a passage like this? It is with humility. We humbly turn ourselves to God with everything that we are, saying, God, I am yours Take me, have me, use me, break me, undo me, untie me, and remake me again. Laying our pride, laying our sinfulness, laying our selfishness, laying that at God's feet. And that's exactly what I want to do and to encourage you to do. To encourage you to take a humble posture, to kneel, if you can, at your, at your chair. If you need to find another chair to kneel at, please, kneel. In your heart, in your spirit, in your soul, humbly throw yourself at the feet of God and ask for his great and deep mercy in his son Jesus. Let us pray and do that together. God, we throw ourselves at your feet. All we have is Jesus. This climb is so hard and we are worn out, we are broken and we've gone the wrong way. And so God, with everything that we are and everything that we have and everything we can muster and all the grace that you're giving us in this moment, we fling ourselves upon you. Your kind mercy that you have shown us in Christ, we put this car in reverse and we back ourselves to you by your grace. We take Christ up again as our greatest and deepest treasure.
leaving behind all that we've trusted in and all the things that we thought would get us merit with you and all the things that we've loved more than you. We chop back those weeds that would seek to grow up over this fruit that you're producing in us. And with a good and honest heart that you've given us, we hold fast to the promises that you've made to us, not forgetting that you cannot lie and that you are the great promise keeper. We are yours, Lord. Take us again. Have us again. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.